Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest Edward Cronin to the show today. Our guest is an author, consultant, and executive in the field of American and international law enforcement. He holds a graduate degree in criminal justice management, along with an advanced graduate degree in organizational development and systems thinking. Our guest has had experience as a police chief in two Massachusetts cities, as well as working in the United Kingdom, Egypt, Sweden, Portugal, and specializing in advising Eastern European police departments in Russia, Ukraine, and Moldova. He's also a subject matter expert in the field of domestic violence and combating corruption. Ed is an innovative and progressive leader in policing who is the past recipient on the International Chiefs of Police Association Individual Award in the field of civil rights in 2011. As a police chief in Fitchburg, Massachusetts in 2006, he co-developed a task force that employed a systems approach to address crime and educational failures of Latino students. Fitchburg was experiencing a higher murder rate per capita than the city of Boston, mostly within the Latino community, and a high school dropout rate for Latino students of over 40%. His groundbreaking work brought the police, minority community, and the greater community at large together to engage in a process that identified the root causes of systemic racism, mostly unconscious, and a lack of economic opportunities for at-risk youth. This effort refocused the community to address these complex issues that eventually brought about systemic and political change in his city. These efforts were followed up by excellent and progressive future political and police leadership. Today, the city of Fitchburg experienced one murder in 2021 and a Latino dropout rate of less than 8%. It's with great pleasure I welcome our special guest, Edward Cronin, to the show. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. That's very kind. I need to thank you. I want to know how you went about doing these reforms in the midst of the political climate we're in right now, and what you find from your own personal experience in terms of satisfaction of making change for the better in Fitchburg. And I wanted to find out your secret. First of all, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this subject, because it's very dear to my heart. And when you were saying and what it was that I did and to talk about how it all happened, it almost got overwhelming to think about it again. It was a few years ago when we actually did this process, but basically what went on back then when I was in Fitchburg is still going on in many communities today. And my mantra is, 
if you're doing things the same old way and you're getting the same results, then you need to be looking at things a little bit differently. And that calls us all to think out of the box a little bit. And I think the first thing you have to do as a leader is you have to look at yourself and honestly ask yourself this question, what do I do to make the problem worse? And that's a big question because a lot of times we're not even aware that we are doing things that are proliferating the problem rather than solving the issues. And when I was a police chief, it wasn't until I met a Latino woman named Syra Pinto who actually asked me that question. When I said to her, she was working to improve the graduation rate of the Latino kids. When I said to her, where are the people in the community that I can talk to in the Latino community, especially the men, where are they? And uh, basically she said to me, what are you doing about it? I said, you got all the power. You got the money. You got the million dollars in the budget. You've got 100 police officers. You've got all the guns and the cars and everything else. What are you doing about it? And uh, at first, that was an easy question to think, no, that's not relevant. But it is relevant because it did tell me that I had power and that I could be using this power in a different way. It, it takes a city is what you're saying. You know how they say it takes a village. It takes a mm -hmm. city. And she's pointing it right back at you and saying, if you want this to change, what steps are you going to take about it? Because you're policing our children, but you've got the resources. How did you take that and go from there? What did you do next? I reflected on it and I began to meet with her more often. And she happened to be a systems thinker also, which was a very unique thing because I was learning about systems and I was thinking very deeply about why is all this crime occurring? And I reached out to what I thought were pastors in the community, because Boston had done a similar program called the Boston Miracle, friending the clergy, the black clergy in Boston. And a very brilliant man by the name of Eugene Rivers took that on with the police. And they managed to really drop the homicide rate dramatically uh, with the processes and the trust that they used. So I went back and I sought out some pastors in the Latino community. And I found out that they're pretty much like me. They're Catholics and they go to church on Sunday and that's it. There's no street ministry. So I had to find the leverage point. And Syra introduced me to that le leverage point. It was the women in the community. So she started bringing them in and I started meeting with them. And for the first two or three meetings, they blasted me, told me how racist my offices were, how racist the schools were. And rather than respond, I just listened. And one day I got in my car and I said, I'm going up to the high school. I just want to see what's going on up there because that failure rate is ridiculous and I don't understand it. So I went up there and this was quite a few years ago and things have changed dramatically there for the positive. But at the time I went, school disciplinarian was standing outside the high school doors and he was yelling at a Latino kid. And in Massachusetts at 16, the school system can dismiss you, expel you. And he was yelling at this Spanish kid, whatever his first name was, Jose, next week you turn 16 and we're throwing you out. So that's how they dealt with the issues. And that's when I learned very quickly that this problem was so far out of control by the time it got to me that 
all I was doing was just part of the pipeline to the jail. Mm. So I had to start to look at things and I began to listen more and more. And one day, one of the women called me up and she blasted me on the phone. We arrested her son for drugs and you guys are racist, you this and that. And prior to this woman calling me, one of my detectives came to me and said, this kid, whoever his name was, Johnny Jones, he's going to be killed. They're setting him up to kill him. He's dealing, right? He says, but we're going to take him down. So I said, okay. So when the woman was on the phone screaming at me about everything, the only thing I said to her when she was done was, ma'am, your son was going to be killed by another gang member. And I don't want your son to die. And she burst into tears. So really, all that stuff was noise that I was getting from the community, was anger. But underneath it all was somebody who could understand or at least felt they could trust to begin to do things differently. I feel like you're handling it as a human being. Like, you could tell I'm a little touched as you're talking right now, but if I was talking to someone on the phone and they are on a call and they were saying, you're racist, your department's racist, and you listened and you had such a compassionate approach, I feel like that truly could make a difference. And that might be your secret is engaging, listening, caring, being transparent. I'm just picking apart as you tell me. I'm listening as an outside observer. And there's so many times I'll watch the news since George Floyd and it bothers me that our country doesn't have enough people like you in positions of authority. Because if we did, we'd probably tackle these issues a lot more effectively than we have been. And it shouldn't be our role to line up in our respective corners and be lazy about things. Like when you just described the school administrators, like passing out 16-year-olds to go in, in line to jail or wherever else happens, that's so problematic for us as a society when you think about it. These are people who are educated and trained in their positions and they're failing the system. That's what I see when you're describing what you describe, a complete abject failure of what they're supposed to do. Kind of look the other way and just pass people through. And you did that in any other kind of scenario, you'd say that person, those people are incompetent or negligent. They just stop caring. And I think from my review of what we're talking about right now, you cared. You didn't stop caring. You decided to be creative about it and you came up with an alternative approach. Go ahead. First of all, I got goosebumps when you were talking just now, because it's not often when I can speak to somebody who is reflective like you are and feedback these things. Because when you talk to other law enforcement people, that's like talking Greek in a lot of ways to people, because they're so in tune with the system that's in place. And when you talked about George Floyd, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, all right? Because it was all, whatever we're doing doesn't work. And that's not a criticism of the police. The police, in my opinion, are just a reflection of the community at large. They're doing what the community wants them to do, all right? And if we don't have leadership that stands up and says, wait a minute, let's really sit back here and look at the results of what's going on with our system. We incarcerate more people than any other country in the world by far. China has 1.6 billion and we incarcerate 10 times more than they do, all right? I think you have to ask yourself, if you're honest, if we're incarcerating all these people and there's a five times bigger percentage of minority people in 
the system is broken. It doesn't work. Now, that doesn't mean the cop that goes out on the street every day isn't a good person and doesn't do their job. It just means we need to be looking at things a lot differently. We had a shooting after I did the work in my community of a young black young man, 19 years old. The state police chased him on a car stop into our city, and he was wanted for a minor thing. But he was wanted, and he didn't have a license, and he wouldn't stop. And one of my officers joined in, and they stopped the car on the side street. State trooper got out of his car to approach the vehicle. The kid panicked. He drove towards my officer with his car. The state trooper shot him and killed him. Black officer that I had who was involved in it, when I called him, what happened? He said, Chief, if he didn't shoot him, I would have had to shoot him. He was coming right at me. All right. So that's all I know. So in the morning, I get a call from the black minister who I worked with very closely with over the years. And I picked up the phone. It rang at eight in the morning. And he usually says, hi, how are you? And all that. And he says, what happened, chief? And I said exactly what I just told you. And that all I could tell you is Dougie Dotton, my officer, was going to shoot him if he didn't. And Tom, the minister, said to me, if you said it, I believe it. All right. So there were other advocates in the community that I met with. We ended up having peaceful protests in the city. There was no violence. And there was a trust that was there in order for me to be able to be trusted by them. I had earned that. I had made that bank account with them for many years. Okay. And as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Staples today. This was years ago I'm talking about. And I saw Tom, the minister. He says, you don't remember this, he said, but that night I was with your street supervisor and all kinds of people around the car. People are extremely upset, minorities yelling. And the officer called you at home and he said to you, chief, they're really upset and all this other stuff. He says, what do you want me to do? And he said, you told him, and I didn't remember this because he fed it back to Tommy. He said, you told him, close the street off and let those people grieve. And uh, I wasn't, I didn't even remember that, but he fed it back to me. So what I'm trying to say is when Ferguson happened, all these other things happened. How come my city didn't blow up? Isn't any different. Had you care. <laughs> and we had reflective and you can figure out how to handle it so that you're not offending people by acting in a certain way that seems indifferent. And that's what I think. I think it's because you care. As you're telling me the story, you know what I'm asking myself? How do we take what you're doing and make it more universal? How do we help other law enforcement officers and administrators and politicians? Because you're right. If you guys have the weapons, and I don't mean to say like you personally, but if the law enforcement people have the weapons, that's already coming from a position of authority over any individual. And from my vantage point, a lot of these times that these shootings happen, they're unarmed. They have their hands in the air. That's not, or they're back to somebody. That to me doesn't reflect a threat. Now, in this particular instance, you indicated that somebody was in a car heading towards an officer. So I can understand that as a more legitimate thing if that's the facts. But you always have to look the facts of these things. And a lot of times, I've been studying this stuff since George Floyd happened a few years ago. And I went to five peaceful protests myself here in Tampa. They've made new laws that make it harder 
the protests. And if you get hit by a car as a protester. Florida is another world. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I say that, but the protests I went to expanded my perspective, just like I'm sure your interactions have expanded yours. And for what I'm looking at, as I'm hearing you describe this, you're exactly the kind of police administrator I wish we had in place across the country. We need people who are effectively thinking of the situation and caring about the community you serve and protect everybody, not just one fraction of the populace or one faction of the populace, I should say. I want to ask you this. When you went through these experiences, was there at any moment you felt like true change could happen beyond the community of where you're at or the people you're working with? So like when you see this as an example of success or more effective ways of handling the situation as compared to what I consider failed drastically and dramatically in 2020, what would you say to other officers, to other law enforcement, politicians, people who are of influence in this debate? What would you say to them that they can maybe learn from you and your experience that might help the situation? First of all, we need to approach whatever we do as leaders with humility. And that means I don't really know what's going on here and I need to learn. One of the things I haven't said is I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in my community off my job uh, when we would have shootings and these kids would get killed at these picnics and things of that nature. Some of the kids that were involved were kids who had criminal records and all this other stuff, but I didn't see that. I saw death. Okay. So I used to, I literally would sneak to go to the funerals or the, the wakes and I'd sit in my car and sit across the street from the funeral home and watch all the people going in. And then people would come up to me at my car and things of that nature. But if I went into that funeral home and the officers at that time, not today, but at that time, and the community found out I did that, they would have hung me. So I had to find ways to gain trust with people. We had what was called, are you familiar with what's called a quinceanera? It's a 15, when you're 15, I believe, in the Latino world. To make a long story short, we had one. And there's a lot of controversy about them because they're so expensive and people can't afford them and they invite people and others don't come. And to make a long story short, that night we had it in, in a, one of the local parks and two boys that weren't invited showed up and got kicked out and came back and shot up the crowd and killed a couple of people. And the next day, the newspapers in my office asking me, do you think we should cancel quinceaneras? And I said, yeah, right after Christmas. Because that's usually a heavy time when I have a lot of shootings, too. All right. And when I was at hiding at one of those wakes, Syra came up to me. She was working in the school systems. And she said, Ed, two of those kids that would kill were high school kids. And we don't even have grief counseling. So things were behind the scenes. There was so much and so deep in what was going on. When you talked about power. I didn't realize how powerful my position was until I started working in a different way because I was a white police chief and I stood up at a meeting that we had done systemic work about identifying those issues we talked about. And other people stood up that were leaders in the communities and two, including a couple college presidents in the newspaper and said, we're not talking about racism. And I stood up 
as the white police chief after these people had trusted me and said, yeah, we are going to talk about it. All right. And then one of the first things we did was all the drug money we were taking in. And I was taking in hundreds of thousands of dollars in raids and things like that. We set up a pool of money for kids for jobs instead of spending it back on enforcement. And that was the beginning of part of the changes that came about. But I'm not, I'm talking a lot here, but I'd rather you share your wisdom. My audience is used to me. Well, Obviously, you, I need to ask you some questions to make this a dialogue, but sure, you impressed me so much with your approach right now. I can't even like you could probably tell by seeing me on camera. I get a little emotional on this stuff because it's hard for me to, to understand and grasp that there's resistance to you wanting to implement effective changes to help people are impacted every day. And there's fear and there's miscommunication and misperception. That's what is another variable here is you have the lack of trust that you going to wakes and funerals undercover is probably not part of your job description, I would say. Usually that's the stake out or the investigate. You went out there because you were like, hey, I want to be a part of this. I don't want to create controversy, but I want to be a part. I want to at least be there in spirit and be there across the street. I wish people did this more. I wish people could connect more and actually see people who they are, not as just on the surface of somebody that you can form a judgment real quickly with. And when you talk about systemic racism, because I think that's so important in our dialogue, even when you think about all the things we're up, how do you have a dialogue with people that don't want to bring this up? Because I've seen it as well. When you try to say systemic racism, you automatically, and now you're in this territory where other people consider that like a culture war and they try to blow a whistle and make it about that. And I'm like, it's in my opinion, the state of where we are right now. And if we address it finally, the way you are, this may not be a problem for our children or grandchildren to deal with. It might be something we can finally handle. And I want to ask you, so what do you do when you deal with people that don't have your point of view and don't share your approach? That's a great question. And uh... When we did this work, this was back in 2006, we identified it, okay? It's only been the last two or three years where this is really coming to the surface in a big way and where everybody is trying to push it back at the same time. I found um, the strength to do the program through people that were enlightened in my community. I think if you're using your position of power, which I did, and the newspaper was like on me, like flies on, you know what, all the time because of all the crime. They had to listen. So I got my point of view out. Now, a lot of people didn't agree with it. Okay. The majority, at least the silent majority, liked where this was starting and where it was going. Okay. And after we did this work, then minorities began running for office. We had a minority mayor after that. The whole system changed. It was like, as the mayor told me, she was Asian. She said, the same minority community that backed you merged with the intelligent white people in the community, and they took over. And all the those people, they just stayed at the bottom of the newspaper columns online. And they didn't have much. So I think it... it like even today, like I, I was talking to somebody not that long ago and they were talking about this whole issue. And and I said to him, if this is, they're doing this and they're doing that, what about the system? 
what can we do to change? I don't want this system. I just want this. And right now we're headed down the same road now with the crime now. Because everybody wants to come back and bring in cannons and everything else and start locking people up. And we're going to get right back where we were rather than trying to and look at why these things are happening. There is an organization called PERF, and it's an acronym that spells for the Police Executive Research Forum. Okay. And I've been in policing my whole life, and they are out of near Washington, D.C., and they are a think tank the number one think tank for progressive policing. And their executive director was quoted in an article the other day saying what I've been saying for a long time, that the current state of policing that we have, the training needs to change because we are still using a military model, okay? And right now we're telling them you're going to change And then we're taking a military model to train them. And then we're putting them into people that have already been trained in the military model. And we're thinking that's going to change. And it's not. So there needs to be a very heavy overhaul of what our training should look like. All right. And there are just little places to start. Like one of the big things today that's very effective is called restorative justice or restorative practices. And you're shaking your head. So I think you know a little about it. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. The bottom line with the example is you get a kid in school who's in Fitchburg High. He's a minority kid. He keeps getting in trouble in the school. They suspend him. They isolate him. They do all these things. Then he gets to 16 and boom, he's out. Restorative justice understands that punitive process doesn't work. So, in a situation where, say, bullies another kid in the schoolyard or something like that. In a restorative process, there's different methodologies, but you would bring the bully and the victim in a room together. Now, they have to agree to it. And you got to bring in their support people that are with them. It can be their parents, their friends, whoever it is. You can bring in the teachers. And it's a process that's guided where the offender is shown through feedback from other people, what he did and how it affected other people. And if the kid is a, wants to really make up for it, he's got to come up with a plan to restore his trust with this kid in the community. And they do it and it works. Okay. It doesn't work all the time, but it works a lot. And the beauty of it is the offender is really getting something that they need. And the court system, the court doesn't care if you're a victim or an offender. You're part of the system. But in this type of a system, the offender really gets to say what they want and gets to have the approval to say, of, okay, I accept that. And then the beauty of the whole thing is, if it's done correctly, is the offender is reintegrated into the community without stigma. So he, gets, he gets a real powerful second chance. That's you know? And that can be taught in the police academies, right? I don't, any police officer will tell you that they go to Johnny Jones' house a hundred times a year and they're going at it all the time, okay? And when you go, they just try to calm them down and whatever, you make an arrest or whatever, but you never solve the issue. But a lot of those situations, if we could take those people out of those flaming situations and sit them down with the proper type of guidance and coaching, if they really wanted to get at this problem, we could be settling a lot of problems outside the court system. So 
that's one area that I would love to see uh, developed. I have to share this because as an attorney, a lot of the stuff we do, I do civil litigation, a lot of stuff that we do in that respect. I have a lot of, I'd say, I've invested my own appreciation of alternate dispute resolution. So you file a lawsuit, you go through litigation, and at some point the parties do a timeout and they negotiate and you effectively have a give and a take and a, a real resolution of the situation. It's never perfect, but it's better than going to trial and risking your client's rights and the other side has to pay more and it's drawn out. I think that restorative justice sounds exactly like an ADR kind of thing for me, except in the criminal setting, it's where you get, and it sounds very tribal to me, like like something that we probably did thousands of years ago in a less complicated society where you actually allow. It's all from ancient Aboriginal customs. Well, I love that because it just, it resonates with me. And think about if you could train officers and you could do this, you could train officers to learn how to deescalate and to have like this, you could even have like public rooms used for meeting rooms or a park or something. And then the terms of the it's a great idea. I think I wish it caught on more. What I have to ask you as a follow-up is how do we enact these across the board? Because you you look at the state, the federal, the local level. I know the local level is the most effective, but there has to be some type of a apparatus on a national level or a statewide level that needs to be re- responsive to this stuff. And what have you found from your experience in trying to get these ideas out there more, aside from appearing as a guest on podcasts and having a book and everything? Like, what do you it's been very difficult. And the system is so huge. And it's an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry with so many people who have so many stakes in it, even in the legal system, as well as the police system. It's overwhelming. We had a time in this period before 9-11 where we had an office that we still have, the Justice Department. And they still have an organization called COPS, C-O-P-S, Community-Oriented Policing Services, okay? And prior to 9-11, when Clinton was president, he funded a lot of programs to for police to try different methodologies on the street to team up with communities. And it got very strong and very competitive among police departments. I used to go to conferences 20% of the people at the police conferences were civilians. It was like, I can run a better program than you. You know what I mean? So it got really, and then 9-11 came and all the money was taken away. Okay. And we went to putting all that money into Homeland Security. We went to war. We had two wars. A lot of the people that we were getting coming into the field were coming out of the wars coming out of the military, very comfortable with using technology, guns, not community policing. And I think we got to a point where we forgot how to talk to people. And that's a general question. But what I'm trying to say is all that hours that you need to spend in the community as a leader or as a police officer was put aside. And I think what we need to have now, and I'm very disappointed now in Joe Biden, because I thought, because he goes back to those days, I thought he would come up with some programs in the Department of Justice to start feeding this initiative again, to start getting people out there to say, okay, here's $100,000, Ed Cronin, you're a police chief. Tell me how you're going to knock your crime rate down. 
All right. And so I do a program like we just talked about. Okay. All of a sudden, that's highlighted by the Justice Department and it catches on. And then before you know it, we're conferencing. We don't even conference anymore. We go see what other people are doing. You know what I mean? And you take a piece of it and you make it better. And right now, there's no acknowledgement of that. And I think part of it is lost in this ideology that what happened to George Floyd and the eruption and the anger in the Black community is a mask of what's really causing all the problems. And therefore, you can blame that for it. So we're in a period of no decisions right now. And I find it very frustrating because I've done work and I have the efficacy and I've got the statistics to show it was very, but if it doesn't fit into what people want to do, or if it doesn't, most people that have written my book, just about every one of them loved it and said, I liked it. And then I ran into one guy the other day. He says, I couldn't stand your book. I didn't agree with anything in it, except one thing or something like that. Because I took that role of and not pontificating to the community about what was going to happen and how they were going to respond. Right now, we need some really strong politicians that are not afraid to say, because right now we're on the cusp of it again. Crime is up and everybody wants to say it's because we're soft and we're just going to go back down that road again. It's the worst way to look at the situation too. You're ignoring history on all levels if you look at it that way and you're just repeating mistakes and perpetuating a system that kills without asking questions and just does things without, not you personally, I'm saying the system itself seems so mechanical where if someone falls into the grinds, they die. They either get shot or something horrible happens. And I'm like, there's gotta be like, you're presenting alternatives. And too many times you'll see people put their hands in the ear when you ask them these questions, right? Yeah. You'll ask them, you'll ask someone in authority and say, what are you, what is your department doing any differently? You get the deer in headlights look, yeah. or you'll get people saying, we've done everything we can. There's nothing else we need to do. We need it. We need more weapons. We need more forces. We need, and I'm like, well, where is that solving the issue? That's just throwing at it. What you're saying is another thing that really stirred me to write the book because I watch CNN on a regular basis and at two or three times a week, there's some violence going on in the community and they'll bring in some talking heads. One of them is the former police chief in Washington, D.C., Charles Ramsey. He's a great guy. I know him very well. But when I listen to these people talk, they offer no solutions. They amplify. They amplify what's going on in terms of, yeah, this is a really horrible thing and we need to be addressing this and all that, but no solutions. And if I, like, when I'm talking to you now, I feel like I wish I could be on CNN and talk about what I'm talking about, because at least it would create a conversation with some hope and not just make it another talking head, which who said, oh, yeah, it's horrible that all these people died in Chicago over the weekend and blah, 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 blah. Come on. That's not solving anything. Tell us about your book, Just Policing. What motivated? I know I can tell what's motivated you to write it, but tell our audience about where they can. I know they can find on Amazon and I'll put the link in our show notes, but I want to ask, what have you found to be the greatest impact of writing? I should say after you released it, what has been the response from your colleagues, people in the community, people you've worked with? That's a great question. Bill Bratton, you familiar with that name? Yes. Okay. He wrote a review of my book and uh, he gave me a good plug. And uh, one of the things he said that in the review was that 
in talking with his former co-worker, guy by the name of Timoney, who was famous in a lot of his in his books. I read both his books. Said, "Police don't read," and I don't mean that as an insult to anybody. I don't see the average police officer sitting down and picking up that book and reading it, and I'm not waiting for that to happen. What I do see is that intelligentsia in the community that I talked about earlier, they're all over it and they see it, okay? And they're voters, all right? Right now too, there's so much frustration out there right now. And I wanted to get out what was on my mind when I did the work that I did, let's put it that way. It was very cathartic for me to do it, number one. And number two, I think I had some good offers of ideas that people could look at and work on in the future. It is being used in a couple of universities right now. They're using it in the criminal justice programs. But I still feel that there could be a lot more to go into it. You can get the book off my website too. It's www.justpolicing.org or Barnes & Noble or Amazon in both forms, paperback or digital. What's your favorite part of all this for yourself going through it i know it's a lot and you can't just it's not an onion that you could just peel back the layer and say it's this it's that but from your vantage point looking at your book and your experience and just seeing that you were able to leave a positive impact through your own direct means what's been the most satisfactory thing about that whole experience for yourself when you look back at it now after the fact kind of quarterbacking later on What I do talk about a little in the book is my background growing up. And uh, my mother instilled the faith in God in me. And uh, I make a million mistakes. I've committed all my share of sins and everything else that goes with it. But I do know something called the ideal. And the ideal calls me, and I think calls everybody, to go back and seek out not the perfection, but seek out the better way. So when I look back, I feel like God took care of me and it was my faith. And it doesn't have to be Christian. It can be any faith. Any faith or any practice has ideals. And that's what we try to do. We try to be true to ourselves and true to others. So that's the feeling that I get when I look back. Like I use that whether I was in Russia or whether I was in Fitchburg. I love that. You know, one thing I haven't touched on with you yet is female empowerment, because I know that that was a big part of your equation when we were talking about Fitchburg and being able to reach out to the mothers, the aunts, the sisters, the wives. How do you think police forces across the country would be with that kind of a approach? Do you think that they'd be open and receptive to it? Or do you think you'd have a lot of resistance trying to pr- provide that as a part of the equation, female empowering? In my situation, I identified it systemically as these women being the power brokers in the community who had the power to change their trust with me. And and once they trusted me, now it turns around and they feel a lot more empowered to step up and maybe take a kid aside and say, knock it off. Or maybe go into the high school and say, look, I talked to the chief. My kid's not leaving. You know what I mean? So that's a, you got to put in the work to make that happen. Yeah. 
how long did it take you to go from point A to point B where you're able to bring that about? Did it take you years? Did it take you months? Did it take you weeks? It probably took a good two and a half years. I had to feel my way through it. Um, I had to experience a lot of the pain that was going on. I sat with families after they were murdered. The beginning of my book starts out with a double homicide on Christmas Eve. And basically sitting with a family, Spanish-speaking people, and trying to make sense of what they were going through. And rather than look at it as a crime and solving the crime or what kind of a process are we going to use to investigate, I got hit with, this is a devastating thing. It's not only devastating to them. If they're hurt, we're hurting. We're all hurting. And that's still a big thing to get people. When you said about systemic racism and thing, it's only when you can see that when somebody suffers that you lose is when you have what the Greeks call a metanoia or a change of heart. And that's what happened to me. I started to understand. That's the aha I'm hoping society engages in that you've gone through that. George Floyd was my breaking point for me, like realizing that I need to be more involved and I can't just be a bystander flipping through the channels, watching something, get upset, change the channel, go get my coffee at Starbucks, come home, go on Amazon. Like I had a way I did it was my, I'm very spiritual because I've had certain experiences. And when this stuff was going on, I felt like whatever it is I plug into that gives me guidance told me, update your podcast. Don't just make it about spiritual stuff. Talk about social justice, police reform, talk about these issues. And so I revamped it. And that's just a show. It's not like I'm out there every day on the street. But when I get a chance to have an interview with someone like you on my show, it is the highest honor I can pay to not only have you on, but to go back to what I feel my spirit guides told me in June of 2020, when I was protesting, like I was walking in a group of thousand people or so in Tampa in the rain. It was the second one I've been to. And I remember there was fear there. Is somebody going to come and do what? I lost that fear and I figured, what can I do? And as I asked that question, when I'm marching, I was told, change your show, use your podcast, get people to talk about this more through your own ways. And honestly, it took me a while to get someone on. I had someone come on right away, but then it took a while to reach out and get someone like yourself. While you were going through your own process, I was looking for someone like you back then to come onto the show at the time, but I couldn't find anybody. It was like, I don't know if you know this, but you're a rare person. There aren't as many people out there as you would like to think are out there doing this and talking and advocating and spending their free time writing a book about it. I wish there were more people like you out there. I wish I had a whole lineup that I could just do it every day and I have a whole show about it. I want to ask you, when I'm reflecting to you right now, what do you think our listener could do? Because a lot of the people that listen to this, they're normally listening about chakras and meditation and spiritual things. And then I bring them this and they're thinking, okay, this is interesting. But spiritually, what do you think our audience could do as human beings when they listen to these stories? Because from my vantage point, what you're describing to me is the way that things should take place in our... Yeah. Like I said, I was brought up a certain way. And... uh... When I look at the border, let's say, I don't see an invasion. I see destitution, okay? I worked in Egypt for a period of time, and I used to go over to Israel occasionally, and I saw the wall that they have when you go over there, and it's a massive concrete wall that goes on for miles. 
and you look at it and it stares back at you and says, you don't belong here. You're not human. Leave. Go. So I've seen that methodology. And I'm not for everybody coming into the country and doing whatever they want. I'm not for that at all. Our politicians don't have the courage to sit down and try to come up with something that makes sense, that people could work with. Is everybody going to win? No. All right. But when I see people that are suffering, I see that as the highest call. You know, whether if especially if you're in public service, can you fix it all the time? No, you can't. But if you can listen, you can understand what's going on. That goes a long way. Interesting as you say that. How many people listening to our show would walk thousands of miles to try to improve their life, to try to improve their future, to potentially help others in their family? I could tell you that when we look at our own society, we should respect people that are risking their lives to try to come to the United States because most of us have relatives that came across on ships, airplanes. Not many walked from one continent to the next and risked their lives to do And I love that you bring that out because I flip through the channels when I watch news, I'll watch CNN. Sometimes my remote gets stuck on Fox News and I'll listen to what they have to say. And every time I flip on that channel, it's always about the horrible... Groups of people coming to invade us from the south. And I'm Fox like, is, Fox how, is, that, how is that even it. accurate? And they show these pictures of people always coming through a river or under a bridge. And I'm like, what about the human side of these people? Like you're talking about the sense of desperation. You, you, it doesn't take much to look at someone crossing in the border and think, oh, you came from Venezuela. Wow. I respect you for risking your life to get up here. Like it, it baffles me. It really does. And I'm so happy that you are presenting a viewpoint that I can 100%. I was pointing myself when you were talking about it. And my audience, just so you know, we're talking on Zoom right now, but I, I identify with what Edward Cronin is saying right now. And I believe everyone in the audience should really take a, a deep look at this issue yourselves and understand that this is all about humanity, improving ourselves and connecting with each other. This is where it starts. And so I would persuade anyone in our audience to get Ed's book, read it, review it, understand it, and appreciate it. Because I think that that is absolutely what we need right now. And I want to thank you for coming on because obviously, I know you're very passionate about this topic and I am not as in-depth. I have not been in the police force or anything like that. I'm an outsider looking in. But to have someone that's inside the system looking back at me, it's like a mirror and it makes me feel damn good. And I feel like that I have trust that there are people in our country that are more like you than what I fear before this interview. <laughs> in other words, you're giving me a ray of, of hope, a ray of positive reflection on this issue to say, you know what? We're not lost. We're not lost. I'll leave you with a follow-up question here. What do you think the future of the system is going to look like 10, 15 years from now? I think we're in a very critical time right now. And right now, I don't see anything happening in the next three or four years, that's going to be significantly different unless somebody surprises me. But I think unless we want to do the work as a country and as individuals to make things better and come to the realization that when one lose, all lose, then I don't see it changing. And I wish I could say 10 years from now, people are going to get it and it's going to change. But I think we need leadership that really wants to look at what the problems really are all about and work on addressing those things. 
That's the best I can offer. Such a common sense approach. Yeah. <laughs> a complex scenario that really needs common sense right now. Yeah. And I have to just say, you leave me speechless. And normally I'm not speechless at the end of an interview to tell you that. I just want to thank Ed for coming on the show today and sharing his wealth of knowledge in this area because of how important it is. We do need to start advocating for things like restorative justice. I am just so excited to get this episode out and share this with each of you. When you think of this issue, take your glasses off, take your viewpoint of whatever it's been that you've had the last, say, three or four years, for example, the George Floyd thing. For The whole world knows about that. Take your glasses off for a minute. Think of what we're discussing right now, these topics. It's a very important thing for each of you to do as a citizen of society. Like I think we all have a moral responsibility to our society to hold each other up. And when one loses, we all lose. That resonates with me and it reflects what I say that we're all one. We're spiritual beings inhabiting a physical world. And if you can take the blinders off and not look at color that separates us or differences and look at our similarities, I feel that's what Ed did in his line of work as a police chief to settle an issue from a common sense point of view. We need to do this more, guys. Check this information out. Justpolicing.org is Ed's website. I'm going to have it in the show notes. I'm going to have his book in the notes as well. I implore you to definitely support Ed on his journey as he does this because it's our journey. It's our mission. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode. There'll be more programs like this coming up. Stay positive, stay informed, because when you do so, anything's possible. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there.